If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's pray. Father, there's a sense of where I come into this pulpit tonight trembling. For we recognize that we have an adversary who is real and he has power. And even though you have called us out of darkness, we are still somehow drawn to his deceptions. So Lord, I pray that tonight that you would protect us. Would you protect me as I speak? And would you help us to see you and to celebrate your victory over the evil one? Let each of our hearts be comforted and encouraged. Let us tremble with awe and fear that we might worship you in gladness. We ask this in your name. Amen. A husband and wife were out walking in the garden when they came across a snake. Now this might sound like The famous story, uh, or the infamous story, uh, of the events that took place in the Garden of Eden. But this isn't the same thing. This event, particular event, took place in southern Texas. And the snake was a western rattlesnake. Unlike Adam and Eve, this couple knew the snake is dangerous. So the husband dutifully did what most of us would do. He went for his shovel and proceeded to remove the snake's head from the snake's body. And so the hero, perhaps drunk with pride, with a puffed chest, foolishly, inexplicably, reached down to pick up the severed rattlesnake head. And even though it was detached from its body, he was bitten. The head opened its mouth and latched onto the man's hand and delivered a nearly deadly dose of venom. His wife was a nurse and sprang into action and got her husband into a car where they began the one-hour drive to the nearest hospital. But about two minutes into that drive, she realized her husband was not going to make it. He began to have seizures. He lost his eyesight. And unknown to them, he somehow began to bleed internally. Unable to make it to the hospital in time, they were met by an ambulance and then by a helicopter, which flew this 40-year-old man uh, to the hospital as his organs began to shut down. Now, I don't know the end of the story, so you're just going to have to imagine. The snake died. The snake died, and that's the end of our story tonight. But why in the world would I tell the story? I looked around to make sure there are no children here. Um, but why would we tell this story? Well, I think it serves us as a graphic reminder that a snake, one even with a mortal head wound, is still very dangerous. 
Tonight, we are going to consider a biblical theology of reptiles. A biblical theology of reptiles, particularly snakes and dragons. We're going to explore how the Bible presents one who is a serpent in Genesis 3, who is also the dragon in Revelation 20. We're going to consider why he is so dangerous, and we're going to celebrate his defeat. We'll pay special attention to our hero, Christ, who is presented as the serpent crusher. But before we examine Genesis, I'd like to establish a point that should sober us and perhaps even make us tremble a little. Before we try to make sense of the talking serpent in Genesis chapter 3, we need to sober our hearts with this frightening reality. On multiple occasions, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes it clear that Satan is the ruler of this world. That this world in its present state is ruled by Satan. His apostles continued this teaching. You don't need to turn there, but let me just mention a couple texts. Just listen and think about this. In 1 John, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies within the power of the evil one. First John teaches us that there is an evil one, and he has some sort of power. And this power is real, and it is significant. Ever since the fall... Where man surrendered their dominion over the world to a talking serpent, Satan has been the strong ruler of this world. And as you might expect, his power, his attention is primarily concentrated on human beings. On those of us, all of us, who have fallen short of the image of God. And we need to take careful note that for all who do not follow the way of Christ, that they are enslaved and under this power. They are dominated by the standards of this world. Those who do not know Christ, who organize their lives without reference to God, the Bible says they are enslaved to the ruler of this world. It doesn't matter if they attend church. It doesn't matter what they say about Christ. If they organize their life around the principles of this world, they are enslaved by the ruler of this world. They are his citizens, his followers, his prisoners. And unless they turn from their ways, they will not take part in the victory we will celebrate tonight. Satan is the ruler of this world, and we should be aware of this. Jesus himself made this clear in his teaching. He, I was looking at numerous incidents where he talked about this. One example, John 12. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. There's lots to note there, but of course note that Jesus called Satan, he admits. That he's the ruler of this world. 
Evidence of this is also seen dramatically at the temptation of Jesus, where you remember what Satan offers Jesus? He says, hey, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, the only way that that temptation could be meaningful, the only way it could be real, the only way it could be a temptation, is if Satan somehow possessed the kingdoms of the world. And that fits because he is the ruler, he is the prince of the world. Jesus admits this on multiple occasions, but I can't wait till the end to tell you because I noticed that on every single, every single time that Jesus admitted that Satan, every time that he acknowledged Satan to be the ruler of the world, he also mentioned, and I came to defeat him. I came to cast him out. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I came to defeat him. I especially love how he puts it in John fourteen thirty. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. (laughs) And he goes on to talk about how, because he obeys the Father. How did this come about? How did Satan garner such control over the earth? I mean, and are we naive enough to think that this does not include America or Jonesboro? Satan is the ruler of Jonesboro. But to see how this came about, we need to go back to the beginning. And there we discover that there is a snake in the garden. In the creation account, we are told that there's a snake on the loose, a serpent rather, and he is dangerous. Now we're not told that much about him. It will not satisfy all your curiosity. We don't know where he came from. And we, at least I certainly don't know why God allowed him in. The Bible doesn't answer those questions. The reason is, is the Bible is not about the serpent. The Bible is about God. And by the way, this sermon is not primarily about Satan. Because as you will see, we will see much more about the serpent crusher. But we don't, the reason, you see, we don't need personal knowledge of the enemy. So we don't have all the details, but we do need to understand the dangers of the world where we live. The creation account makes it clear that after all that God had made, he created, he created particularly all the animals and then God created man and woman. And we've seen again and again that God made man and woman with a particular purpose. Specifically, they were to submit to God's rule, submit to his rule, By spreading his rule throughout all the world. That's what it means to be made in his image. They were representatives. They were vice rulers. They were co-rulers in God's world. People would be able to look at Adam and Eve and know what God is like. Namely, as they submitted to him. God speaks, they submit. That's how they were to function in his image. But instead of submitting to God's word... They literally submitted to a serpent's word. They disowned God and submitted to the serpent's word. So think about it. They were told to exercise dominion in the garden, particularly over the animals. And then comes a talking serpent. And what did they do? They obeyed it, right? They, they obeyed it. And in doing so, they actually became subjects or servants, or should we say prisoners, of the serpent, Now, one of the things we're told about this serpent is that he is crafty. There's lots we could talk about, but I want to think about that word for a minute. 
We've already read the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, at first, we're not told what this craftiness means. Does this mean that he has like a Pinterest interest? Or like, uh, like is, it, is it a positive thing? Is it, is it a negative thing? But, but I think pretty quickly we can realize that for most of human history, animals, wild animals, have been a threat to humans, right? They've been a threat to humanity. So when the serpent is elevated up above other beasts of the field, it's because he is dangerous. And how is he dangerous? He talks. Like God, he talks. God has a word. Satan has a word. There's God's word and there's Satan's word. Beware. Now, animals don't normally talk, and I I wish I was going to explore this tonight, but I don't have time. But we can see this one does. Look at the very first words that come out of his mouth. The very first words recorded in chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say? The first recorded words of Satan, of the serpent, and by the way, we, we see in Revelation the serpent is Satan, so we'll... We'll get there in a minute. But the first recorded words of the serpent are designed to persuade humans to disregard God's word. That is his purpose. That is his agenda. And this is one of the big applications that has jumped off the page for me. It has been ringing in my mind all day. I'm telling you, I've never quite thought of it like this. Our enemy talks. God talks and Satan talks. And if I, I, perhaps I could, this is speculation, I'd have to think about this more, but I would, if he's crafty, I would imagine his words are probably his primary weapon. If not, let's just say they are very powerful. A primary weapon. So the question for us is who are we listening to? I started to think all throughout the day, thoughts were coming to my mind, and I'm like, is this, a, is this, is this from God or is this from Satan? I was shocked at how much Satan talks to me. You understand what I'm I'm saying there? There's an alternative word. Now, Genesis never actually identifies the serpent as Satan, but as we'll see, Revelation calls him the ancient serpent. And we should pay attention to how God responds to the serpent. Because when they sin in Genesis 3, not only are man and woman, Adam and Eve, cursed, but the serpent is cursed as well. Look over at verse 14. Now the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this becomes really interesting. Who, the serpent, has been bad, so who will punish him? Who, who, who is going to dole out justice? Notice that it is a human that will do this. One of the race of Adam one made to rule the world, will come and one day he will actually rightly rule over the serpent. He will execute judgment and he will defeat the serpent. 
It is the seed of the woman who will dole out this punishment. But this punishment, this justice, will not be accomplished without injury. Both parties will get hurt. Did you see that in the text? The serpent will get a head wound, but the seed will get a heel wound. One's head will be bruised, one's heel will be bruised. Just keep that in mind. Now, we don't have time to trace out all the consequences of this event in this particular day, but, but if you were to follow, for the ladies who are studying Genesis, pay, I don't know, Jen Wilkin might get into this, but pay attention to this theme, that if you were to follow, she probably will, right? But if, if you were to follow the bloodlines... You can see that there is a distinction beginning with Cain and Abel that there's one line that is obedient and enjoys blessing and there's one line that is murderous, rebellious, and is cursed. The one of Cain and then Lamech. You remember Lamech? What is he? He's just described as the murderer, right? right? I mean, that's what he does. And, and, and so they live under curses. And it's a pattern that continues even throughout the Bible. Because think about it. Children, particularly the way the Bible talks about them, reveal the character of their father. Children reveal their identity by whom they imitate. Children of God imitate God. And the children of the devil imitate the devil. This is, Jesus brought this up when he talked to the Pharisees, right? He called them sons of the devil. First John, when he, John brought it up again. Listen to this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It does not make you tremble to know that we have friends and loved ones and family members who are children of the devil? Man. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Right? There are children of God and children of the devil. And there are other ways that we could trace the influence of the serpent throughout the Old Testament. One of the major ones is that we could see how kings, especially the kings of the nations, seem to be in close union with the serpents. Particularly kings, well, namely kings, who joined in Satan's opposition to God's rule. And kings are in a position to do that, right? Because they rule. Psalm 2, you can see that, see that later. But, uh, but we're going to balance the scale in favor of Christ tonight. So we'll keep moving. For now, let's just summarize that by saying uh, the serpent accomplishes major power and victory in the Old Testament. But with that, there's a great deal of anticipation. Who will be the one to overthrow his dark kingdom? That's an, over, that's an undertone going throughout the prophets particularly. Now, the New Testament unabashedly presents Jesus as this conquering hero. Jesus is the one who comes to overthrow Satan. Unlike all humans who have gone before him, Jesus is a man, right? He's a man who is able to resist the crafty charm 
of the serpent. Every single human being from the beginning of history has fallen in love with his words. All but Christ. This is, of course, most clearly seen in the temptation of Jesus, a point we've made many times before, that unlike Adam and unlike Israel, when Jesus is confronted by the appealing words of Satan, he resists them. He shows dominion over the wild animals in the wilderness. And he does so, and as he does this, he proves that he is the true Adam, the true Son of God. He is what humanity is supposed to be like. Obeying God rather than the evil one. This is why Jesus claimed, He has no claim on me, because I do as the Father commanded. That's the difference, right? I can't make that claim as a sinner, because I have not always done as the Father commands, but Jesus can make that claim. And so Satan has no power over him. Jesus is not charmed by the serpent's words. He's been charmed by the word of the Father. And with the arrival of Jesus, Satan's days are numbered. One of the most exciting and graphic ways that we see Jesus' superiority over Satan is through all these strange exorcisms that we see in the gospel. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is always having conflict with demons and why that is recorded in the particularly Mark's gospel we have numerous incidences you ever wonder why he's always talking to the demons and casting out the demons and how all these people have demons right it raises a lot of questions but can we not simply say because Jesus's agenda was to destroy the evil one so he had major problems with his demons and with his spirits and they knew it Right? I love the story in Mark 1, right? The first thing Mark tells us, basically, about Jesus is, is an exorcism. <laughs> and uh, it's, there's, a, there's a story in Mark 1 where in the temple, Jesus delivers a man with an unclean spirit. And the demons scream at Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed and they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? This man commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Friends, let's just revel in the fact that we worship a God who demands demons submit to him. And when he tells them to be quiet, they are quiet. When he tells them to go, they go. They even fall down at him and acknowledge who he is. That gives me great comfort. Because when I come into contact with the work of the evil one, I'm still drawn to it in a way. But not Jesus. They obey him. You bet they do. (laughs) All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Gospels, or just like in the Old Testament, all throughout the Gospels, those who oppose Jesus 
are linked to Satan. Whether it's the demons or the religious rulers or even Peter himself. You remember? When Peter objects to Jesus' plan to die, what does Jesus do? He identifies him as a part of the satanic agenda. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. If Peter can be drawn into the agenda of Satan, should we not be on guard? Oh my goodness. Now we can jump ahead, uh, we'll have to jump ahead to Paul's writings to see how Jesus' conflict with Satan should really be understood. We could trace this more throughout the Gospels, but let's let Paul do some talking. I was very proud of myself that I only included two texts instead of 28. And you should let me, and in the future, just prepare you, you should let me include 28. But for tonight, we'll do two. We'll just keep that, we'll just keep that in mind, right? You see, for Paul, who had a masterful grasp on the Old Testament, he saw the cross as the ultimate place of victory over Satan. We could trace the rich Old Testament language that Paul used to describe the cross. Images of victory, images of kingship and conquest and celebration are all at Paul's disposal to celebrate what Christ has accomplished. One particular verse that, that just resonated with me to see this is listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It, 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 it says earlier that God has forgiven our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, right? He's describing the work of the cross. And then he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Right? If you want to shame a warrior, disarm him. Jesus disarmed him, took away his weapons, publicly, openly shamed him, shook his finger in his face, and went on his way. Hear me clearly, right? Jesus became a man like Adam. He had to partake in flesh and blood so that he could die. And as Hebrews teaches us, that it was through Jesus' death he might destroy the power of death. That is the devil. Because that is his power. That is the power he has over this world. Everyone dies. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet the cross is the fulfillment of that Genesis 3.15 promise. For Jesus is the seed of the woman. And he was, can we say, he was injured on the cross? I say injured because Jesus was not like any other man. Because for Jesus, death is not fatal. <laughs> For Jesus, death is not fatal because he is stronger than Satan. And Satan has the power of death and Jesus is stronger than Satan. Therefore, Jesus is stronger than death. His heel was bruised. But everyone knows a bruised heel isn't fatal. 
We know this because Jesus rose from the dead, church. And in doing this, he issued a bone-shattering, blood-splattering, earthquaking heel to the head of the serpent. And it is a head wound from which he will not recover. And though he is not, though our enemy is not entirely dead, he is in his death throes. Which is why he thrashes and rages against the bride of Christ and with his dying breath is seeking to hurt us. But let's fast forward to the end of the story. However you try to put together the timeline of Revelation and however you make sense of the millennium, we can all agree on this. At the end, Satan, the ruler of this world, will be dethroned. And not only dethroned, he will be destroyed. Now it's really interesting to me that before, at the very end of Revelation, 21 and, uh, the, the, the last two, 20 and 21, before the very end of Revelation, before we see the new Jerusalem coming down, the new temple, right, before uh, the people of God are presented, before God and man are united, and we see this in full culmination, we see the destruction of the serpent. And much of the language in, in Revelation 20 particularly, it takes us back to Genesis, where things went wrong. And let's just, say, let's just suffice it to say tonight that when God places his bride in her new dwelling place, when God places his new humanity that he purchased with his own blood in the new garden that he has made, this time there will be no serpent. He will make sure of this. Revelation 20 verse 2. <laughs> And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it. Now, if you worry about those thousand years, whatever, however you take that, if you're worrying about his release, let's just, let's skip ahead to after that, because his fate is the same. Revelation 20 verse 10 my goal tonight is not to go into that. Revelation 20.10. And the devil who had deceived the earth was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast... It's really interesting that we have the beast that makes me think of Genesis. But where the beast and the false prophets were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, we must take note... That not only is Satan destroyed and all of his power and all of the sway that he has, but all who follow him are also destroyed. All who are like him. Satan's offspring will not be permitted to enter the city of God. Look at Revelation 20 verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
goodness, I read that, and I think half of that could be my biography. <laughs> Praise be to Jesus Christ that that is, that is not our lot for those who are in Christ. But friends, we, we can't grow, we can't grow dull to this. We must speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must confront sinners in their sin and call them to repentance. Friends, in this area, I hear, I hear language all the time, oh, such and such just needs to get back in church. No. Such and such needs to repent and not be a son of Satan and become a son of God. So let's not water down the gospel with this church nonsense. Okay. Let, 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 me, let me close by mentioning a couple lines of application. And hopefully the, you can take these in, in, in directions and be thinking about this. Number one. I think I have three. Okay. Number one. Beware of the talking snake. I said tremble. I think you know what I mean. We need to be, we need to beware. Satan is crafty. He is clever and he is shrewd. He is older than you. He has more experience than you. I don't know what it is that he knows, but I probably safe to say he is smart. And some, he's not wise, but he has some smarts. And his primary tactic is speaking is talking. Particularly, he tries to convince you not to trust the word of God. And friends, let's not, let's just make this clear. Every time we sin, it's because we don't trust the word of God, right? That's what it means to sin. We, choose, we say, God, your word is not good. It's not smart. It's not wise. My life would be better if I do this sinful thing. I'll, I'm, so I'm going to do this, right? Because I don't trust your word. That's what we're doing. And that begins with a false word. And this is Satan's tactic. And we live in his kingdom. His propaganda is all around us. And just as there is a word of God, there is a word of Satan. And he speaks loudly. If you live in this world, if you have cable, if you have the internet, if you have neighbors, if you've ever seen an advertisement, he speaks. And he's speaking to you. His satanic influence is profoundly powerful. And I promise he has honed his offensive attack more carefully than Bill Belichick and the Patriots. He is on the move. And as our Lord modeled for us in the wilderness, the only way, the only way to craft, to combat the crafty message of Satan is with the powerful and active word of God. And friends, I am dismayed at how many Christians I talk to that don't have time to read the Bible. How in the world are we going to even know when Satan is speaking if we don't have time to consider the word of God? I went to the mall today. It was a horrible experience. I had to buy some pants, which is terribly new. His, his message is everywhere. You know what I did not see at the mall? I did not see God's word. I did not hear it. It was not proclaimed. It was nowhere. Do you know what I did see and hear? Satan's word. Man, I had different eyes. And if we don't hear God's word, 
Friends, if you have not yet developed a meaningful Bible intake habit, a daily habit of reading and consuming God's word, I tremble for you. I, I, I just, I don't know how, I don't know what else to say. It is not a, this is not like a piddly little discipleship thing. If you're not, you got to hear God's word to discern the enemy's word. So take it up and read. The sword of God is the most lethal weapon against the ancient dragon. It disarms him and leaves him naked and exposed. And that's a good way to fight. Secondly, recognize that you are involved in a spiritual battle. This is not a game of checkers. This is war. If it were not for the restraining hand of God, Satan would kill you today. Just ask Job. Replay the tape. We have a real enemy. And though we don't need to fear him, we need to be aware. Right? Our enemy prowls around outside of our homes. He lurks in our closet. Should we not use caution? Or Peter said, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Haley and I went to Africa the second year we were married, and we went on a safari, and we were you know, in, in one of these Land Rovers, and, and we were looking for a lion, and I'll tell you what, I was alert, right? Then he said, there are lions out here, and I'm like, or I had a different level of alert. Like, we did not go on a romantic walk through the bush, Right? <laughs> There is a sober-mindedness. There are lions here. Christian, there are lions here. And rather than wandering into his habitat, he is hunting us. Beware. Your spiritual life is not a game. Wake up and watch out. Thirdly, on the other hand, don't be afraid. (laughs) As terrifying as this ancient dragon is, if you are in Christ, you should not be afraid. What a a juxtaposition. We can hide behind the coattails of Christ. And he is the one with the serpent-crushing heel. If you have thrown your lot in with Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ... If you've washed your robes, if you've washed all that sexual immorality and all that idolatry and all that pride, if you've washed all of the adultery, if you've washed it all away in the blood of the Lamb, there's nothing to fear because his victory is our victory. Were it not the right man on our side? What's the song? The Prince of Darkness Grim. Tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I think of Jesus rebuking the demons, and then, okay. Satan will do the same thing. God has given us a glimpse of the end. Not to terrify us, but to assure us. And to sober us. So let us be confident. And let us be watchful while we wait for the morning to come. And while we wait, let's be sure to sing the victor's song. 
Perhaps one example of this is in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and they're just. And he has judged the great prostitute who's corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah. And the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. God wins. Oh God, I pray that you would accomplish tonight so much more than any human word can. Keep us safe from the evil one. Help us to put on the full armor of God. Help us to walk in your spirit. Help us to leave here tonight afraid of sin so that we would not wander into it. And God, we praise you for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have pursued us and you have snatched us from the grip of the evil one. You have gone to people living in a land of darkness and you have shown light. You've caused us to be born again. So give us the song of the victor and help us to live sober lives, proclaiming the news of Christ, waiting for the day when you will fully bring your victory. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.